0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a class from our 2022 Elul Learning Series. Well, first of all, just a brief summary. These are others who have described this. It's, this is no secret. I mean, if you read it through, you, this is, you understand this. So it, there are six parts, according to some. God in the heavenly court judge all living creatures on Yom Hadin, all living creatures, the day of judgment. One by one, they all come before him, right, in one form, with depending upon how you understand the Hebrew there, and he decrees their destiny. And then on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, it's written and, you know, it's inscribed and so forth and so on. Who by this, who by that. But repentance, prayer, and tzedakah, can avert the severity of the decree, and I emphasize that. The severity of the right. Uh pages one hundred forty three, one forty four. That's right, thank you. Yes. Anyway, and uh God wants the sinner to repent. He does not take pleasure in punishing. A, a human's origin is dust, and the end is in dust, God is ever living king. Okay? So that's basically it, and we'll go over that in greater detail in a few moments. Alright, so here's, here's my, okay, first of all, just as an observation, I had this is a critique I have of the, of the, uh, um, translation. Okay, the first two paragraphs in the Makhsor describe the end of days of judgment, right? This is an end of days judgment. That's what it describes. And so the Lev translation should have kept the first paragraph in the future tense as it did in the second paragraph, because it's intended to be a picture of the final day of judgment, okay? And as the note on the page indicates, the one on the side of the page, the brilliance of the poem's author is that he takes an end-of-day's prophecy and he applies it to the present time, okay? So in the shofar passage, he uses a the term, the words of the prophecy of Isaiah, as long with the allusions to the theophanies at Mount Sinai. So he combines the imagery of Exodus 19 and 20, Isaiah 27, and 1 Kings 19 to create a mysteriously powerful experience. All of this is important to the present day. And as expressed in the third and fourth paragraphs, this is an awesome depiction of God's power as judge, who has infinite powers to punish, yes, but who cares for his creatures who are on trial. He cares for us, and therefore he's willing to be compassionate. Okay, that's the ultimate concept here. But I happen to agree in this case, not with the translation, but with the note on the side of the page. It's brilliance on on this poet's part.
1: Which side?
0: On the on the side with the comment, not the trend not the spiritual reading. On the right side, okay. On the right, remember the the technical the the right. uh, interpretive comments are on the right side. There's a lot of good stuff on both pages. We're going to look at it because of the 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 commentary is very helpful. On the left side of the page are spiritual augmentation. For our reading and uh, you know um, and 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 our uh, spiritual growth. All right. Now, who wrote this beautiful poem? Uh, for for centuries, the tradition was, and I used to teach it this way, although I knew that there were questions about it. It was supposed to be Rabbi Amnon of Mainz, right? Who uh, is described in the text. As a man, a rabbi of great renown, okay, and whose story is the focal point of the poem. Okay, because there's a whole story about him that you, that, that is, was told, uh, as an explanation of how the poem was written. Okay. And this comes out of Europe, Northern <coughs> Europe. Uh, this Amnon of Mainz, Rabbi Amnon of Mainz, And my friend, David Golinkin, who's a wonderful guy to, to search out information, he's a walking encyclopedia, and he knows how to get quick results from looking at different sources. So he calls our attention to the fact that nowhere in any rabbinic source is this great rabbi ever mentioned. He does not exist. In fact, it may be a play on the word amnon, which, as Verit Hopenstein will verify for us, comes from the Hebrew word emunah, amen, right? Indicating this man's fierce loyalty and commitment to God. He was a, quasi, a sort of a martyr for the, for the sake of God. Does anybody remember the story about Amnon of Mainz? Yes, Verid? The story, in short, is that
1: he was bleeding as his limbs, his hand and, and feet were were cut off, and he was in great agony and in pain, and and then he was saying the netanatoke.
0: Yes, and it's preceded by the that is that's how it ended, right?
2: Yeah, there, there was there, preceding that. Wasn't there a story that he was told by the king that you know that will you convert? And he said, "Let me yes. think about it." And right. then he repents for three days and That's things true. like that. Right. And says, why did I, why did I do that? Why did I hesitate right. at all in what I was doing?
0: And he throws himself at the king's mercy and the king decides to torture him and he is tortured. And as a result of the pain of the torture, he goes and before he dies, and we don't know if he dies because according to the story, he just disappeared.
2: Yeah. Did and he die? Did he die? Does it, wasn't there like his disciple had a dream? And you yes, heard about
0: yes, That's the point. Rabbi Meshulam ben Kolonimus Kalonim, ben Meshulam, who is a real, real person. All right. According to the story, he had a dream where his teacher, Rabbi Amnon, Rabbi Amnon appeared to him and told him, dictated to him the poem. And, and according to the tradition, uh, Rabbi Kolonimus, uh, wrote it down and that's how it was preserved. And all of this happened around a thousand BC, around a uh, thousand CE in Germany. Okay, these are all, you know, the colonial. All right. What do we know now about this poem? We know that it was in existence sometime around the eighth century of the common era because two snippets of the poem in manuscript form were found in the Cairo Geniza and they have been dated to the 8th century of the common era the time <sighs> of, it's it's the time of the onim and furthermore people who have analyzed the language actually ascribe it to an earlier generation, because that that's when those documents were found i mean that's the dating of the documents right that's the dating of the documents but the fact is that uh, clearly it was in existence before that and there are those who suggest that uh, one of the great Paitanin, Yanai, of Eretz Yisrael, who lived around the year 500, give or take, that he may be the author of this. The point is, it goes back to Eretz Yisrael uh, from probably the Byzantine period, when the Byzantine Christians controlled Eretz Yisrael. And here, so I have to ask the question, how, did, and they know that from the language of the poems. It's it, Kalir. We mentioned that last time. The great Khalir. This is the guy who is his predecessor, Yanai. Okay. And their style influenced a lot of poetic writing that developed in Northern Europe later on in the Middle Ages. And here's the thing. How the question is, how did a poem that presumably was written, uh, created around 500 of the Common Era, end up in Germany in the 11th century, okay? Or whenever it got there, we don't know for sure. The, uh, it is a one of the great other Paitanim in the 12th century refers to it backwards, you know, and he lives in the 12th century. So somewhere between 1,000 and 1150, give or take, Somewhere within that 150-year period, uh, it, it, it was known in Germany, in Northern Europe. Okay, all right. So how did it get there? The answer is the name of the rabbi who was mentioned, who wrote it down, Kalonymus. The Kalonymus family, Kalonymus Kolonimos is Greek. Greek. You know, my 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 great Greek wedding. Here, it is absolutely true. It's a Greek word. Remember the father of the bride? Everything comes from Greek, right? Greek. This is Greek. Yeah, this is Greek, okay? All right. And what does Kalonimos mean? It means Shem Tov, a good name. But that name pops up later in the Middle Ages, uh, but not necessarily in these areas. So it's hard to know if that's a spinoff from Kalonimos. We don't know that. But anyway, it means shame Tov. Good name. And that was the name of the family. We know from different accounts and different documents that they were present in representatives of the family were present. And here it's not sure whether it is in the ninth century or the 10th century of the common era, the 800s or the 900s. Some people, it was King Otto of Germany who invited them. Others push it back to the days of Charlemagne or his son Louis the Pious. In the ninth century, both of those kings sought to develop the internal economy of of Germany and France, because remember um uh, Charlemagne the Carle- Carolingian kings ruled parts of Germany and France, okay both, and so they wanted to use the river systems the great river systems of Europe as a transit route for trade, and they succeeded. And among those who contributed to that growth of the economy were the colonomites, because they were merchants who came over there, but they became great scholars and literati and very well known and martyrs uh one of the one of the members of the family is mentioned as being one of the martyrs in Mainz in the Crusades, okay so this is a very powerful family they come from Italy, and Italy was parts of it, a lot of it, lesser parts, but the part of Italy they came from for a long time during the Middle Ages was controlled by the Byzantines. And that's an area of Italy that received a lot of cultural input from Eretz Israel, because they were all part of the Byzantine Empire. And as you know, Italy, the tip of Italy is the shortest distance from Israel. Very short, relatively speaking, or across the Mediterranean. So that's the conduit. The, the very family, ironically, the very family that was mentioned as involved with the actual preservation of the poem, if they, if not themselves, but the people who came over with them somewhere in that transit were the ones that probably carried the poem over from Eretz Israel. So what goes around comes around. It's really interesting, but the language is clearly not the language of medieval Northern Europe. That's the point, and that's the kicker. Okay, something else of interest. There are some scholars who have shown that the that the certain of the themes and even the details of the poem have their parallels in Byzantine Christian poetry. Okay, now it's not surprising that the poetic culture of a country influences Jewish poetry. Where do we know that that was rampant? Where a country's, the, the non-Jewish population, majority population, their culture influenced Jewish culture in the Middle Ages. Anybody know? And culture and thinking.
2: Was that in, was that in Spain?
0: Yes. Yes, of course, the great poet, Hebrew poets in Spain, like Halebi and others around him. Their motifs and their style of poetry was based on the Arabic poetry of their age, the structures that they used, okay? And also the grammar, you know, Hebrew grammar developed, and Barrett knows this very well, in Spain in the Middle Ages. That's where the rules of grammar developed. Where did they get their rules? They borrowed them from Arabic because they're both closely related Semitic languages was a smart thing to do. These, the Arabs were very much into language. they they believed that Arabic was the language of Allah. The same way we believe the Hebrew was the language of Hashem, right? Same thing. Anyhow, so it, it, it's, yes, to suggest, and where did Rambam get his medicine? From Arabs. Where did he get his Aristotelian philosophy? From Arabs. Okay. I mean, so the cross-cultural, uh, you know, influencing was, 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 was there. It, Apparently happened to one degree or another in, in, in Eretz Israel under the Byzantines. Now, the Byzantines were not very pleasant toward the Israelites, toward the Jews, but nonetheless, the Jews lived there and then they moved to Italy to get rid of, you know, get away from the center of Byzantine influence and there too it, it percolated. So it's not surprising that this connection exists. Okay. All right. So, uh, this is part of what I wanted to introduce. Let me see if we can. Introduce. Um, that's the final point, but really interesting just as proof of the fact that, that Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern Jewish texts were carried over at this time into Europe and even into even in France. So the, the bishops, uh, of oh, two bishops who lived in the first half of the ninth century when the Carolingian kings ruled powerfully, uh, in France and Germany. Okay. These are the bishops of Lyon, the town of Lyon in France, alright? And one of them's name is Agobard, and the other one's name is Amulo. And both Agobard and Amulo give, give, uh, indicate to us that they were aware of, well, one of them, Agobard we know, seems to have been aware of the Hechal, the, 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 um, Shiur Koma, the ancient, the early Talmudic period, uh mystical tracts that that actually define God's the proportions of God's body. Okay? They had this belief that God had a giant body of light. It's a belief it's a concept that may have gotten from, actually from the Manichaeans. Okay. Anyhow, and if you read I've read those texts, okay? So God, some of you have heard me talk about this before. God's legs were 100, 100 million parsangs long, you know, and his arms were 25 billion parsangs long, and so forth and so on. Huge proportions of a body of light, okay? And um, so Agobard specifically refers to the fact that these crazy Jews believe that God has a body, the, the God God in heaven. God the Father, not God the Son, right? The God in heaven has a body. And they're a bunch of crazy wacko people. You want to believe in them? You want to let them live here? That's, that's, they use it as anti-Jewish propaganda. And then secondly, they knew of another source that, in, that emerged out of, and, and anyway, those traditions emerged either out of Eric's Israel or Pavel, but they're Middle Eastern in origin. And they came through that conduit, okay, into Northern Europe. Talking ninth century France, okay. But there's another document that they both know, which is the Toldot Yeshu traditions. Do you know what the Toldot Yeshu traditions are? I know I've taught this before, maybe in my classes. Yeshu Toldot Yeshua is the Jewish version of the Gospels. It turns them completely on their head, on on its head, and it says all kinds of nasty things about Jesus. Not so much about Mary, but a lot of bad stuff about Jesus based upon Jewish interpretations of gospel, of, of canonical gospel and non-canonical gospels, uh, in the Christian world. Okay. I'm not going to, if you want, we can study that at some point in the time. It's, it's a scandal. Okay. And this became one of the most popular books in the Jewish communities. To the point that I can prove to you that my grandmother, may she rest in peace, who used to call Jesus Yoshke okay, not Yeshu. It, 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 there's a Talmudic tradition that instead of calling him Yeshua, they cut off the iron and it was Yeshu. Okay. Cause Yeshua means salvation, right? But Yeshu is not, means nothing. Okay. Somebody said it stood for Yimach Shmo Vizichro. May his name and memory be blotted out, okay, anyhow, so that's what they did, all right? That's just one example, but all kinds of other very nasty things they said about him this I know that my grandmother called Jesus Yoshka Pandra. Now, in the Talmud, this is going to get complicated, so you can stay awake, all right, pay attention in the Talmud. He's called Yeshu Ben Pandera or Yeshu Ben Pantera in the Babylonian Talmud. Okay, by the way, he may be mentioned in the Talmud no more than 40 times. In the entire Talmud, maybe 40 times, that's all. He's not a big deal. But these traditions are founded. Okay, so he's Yeshu ben Pandera. Do you hear Yoshka Pondra there? Pandera, Pondra, right? And Yeshu, he becomes little Yeshu. What do you call him? Yashke, right? It's sort of like a little boy, Yeshu, or yoshke Yoshka Pondra, where did my grandmother learn that? Must have heard it in the family. Okay. So she, her family came over from Russia uh, in 1904. All right. So this is Eastern European lore. Okay. Now, could they have gotten it from the Talmud where they originally appeared by that time? Impossible. Why? Because the Christians from the 13th century around made the Jews take it out of the Talmud. And the fact is, for, for centuries, if you read the Talmud, it was totally Yeshu rhyme. It was free of any content of Yeshu. Not there. So they couldn't have learned it from the Talmud. Where do they learn it? From the Toldot Yeshu stories, which were being transmitted father to son, you know, family to family. And in fact, were actually imprinted Hebrew texts available in the 16th and 17th century because the Christians didn't know about them. They were discovered in the 17th century by a bunch of Christian monks who became interested in Jewish literature in Hebrew. And they found out about it. But by then, there were no Jews around. They couldn't do anything about it except yell and scream. Interesting, and, huh? Wow. And Rabbi,
3: Rabbi, yes. I'm confused. First, you said that there was, um, that, that, uh, almost 40 times is named in the Talmud or referred to in the Talmud. And then you said the Talmud is completely yeshu
0: so, so, say uh, Yes, I said the Christians' censorship took it out. But uh, that wouldn't be Talmud. That would be their
3: their translation they, of it.
0: No, they made the Jews take it out of all of their documents, and the Jews complied with that. Because on that, that was the condition on the basis of which they could keep the Talmud texts. That's history. Um, history.
3: But but you're saying, but that would be Talmud texts in within Christendom, not within um, other areas of the world that
0: Christianity doesn't. Oh, right. But those are, yeah. But those are Muslim areas, and they didn't care that much about it because they that wasn't. Yeah.
3: So in other words, there are versions of the Talmud that still retain the material.
0: Well, no, we don't know about. They haven't been found, as far as I know. The manuscript traditions that we have are are only from Europe. I don't. I've never heard of any medieval manuscripts uh, found, um, you know, from Arab countries. But if so, yeah. But then the people in Europe would never have known about it. Was there any
3: mention of them prior to the 20th century? And I'm like immediately prior to the 20th century? Is it some, it, it was the, no, it, it was only when text- they,
0: no, the fact is that, um, the, they, they know that they were there in the 12th century because they have manuscripts from Europe from the 12th century where those things are still in there. That was before the censorship. Okay. As far as I know, there's no documentary evidence for that appearing again in the Talmud until today's printed texts of the Talmud, free of censorship, do include them in brackets. as stuff Uh that was put in once those earlier manuscripts were found. But the point is... This, the old but we know for a fact that the Told Yeshu traditions continued to be in print down into the early modern period in writing, in writing, right, manuscript form, because the collections of them that the monks collected, you know, from Jewish sources um are there and they've been studied. Rabbi, but the the texts within the rabbinic, within the Islamic
3: world, were they? I don't know of any. I I
0: I know of nothing about that. It's not something that has been studied. If it's there, I don't know about it. All right, somebody else.
4: I did. I was interested in. To me, what you just said implied that there was some level of easing of virulent anti-Semitism among Christian clergy. Because the source for all those problems in the Talmud were were Jews often rabbis that were forced to convert, so then they converted were on the other side of the disputations. Those were the informants no let me correct you
0: they were say- they were not rabbis, they were people who'd studied Talmud who chose to convert they well were, they were I, apostates they were not
4: yeah, but when to me when you convert under enormous pressure. No, oh, no, no.
0: They were people who had ideal. We know who they. Some of them were. They were people who have the rabbi. The sources in the Middle Ages tell us they were people who were always questioning the rabbis.
4: Oh, interesting. Because I thought at least one lost a disputation and was forced to convert. No. But But regardless, that's much earlier. No. That
0: no. the The major the the first major disputation was in Paris. I thought it was fourteen something. No? no. No, no, no. That's two two disputations later. The first major disputation was in Paris in uh, in 1240, and that's when it was in preparation for that. And subsequent to that, that the Christians became aware of all of this stuff. But uh, no. But no then... sorry. Wait. Take. Stop. Stop. In 1236, a an apostate Jew who seems to have been influenced by Karaism of all things, because the questions that he raises about the Talmud are the same as the Karaites raised. All right. Cause the Karaites, certain Karaites criticized the Talmud. All right. So so this Jew becomes a Catholic pre a monk. He contacts the Pope and says, the Jews are saying nasty things about our, our God and about our religion. Okay. And more than that, they no longer believe that the Bible is the true source of Judaism. They believe the Talmud is. And that violates the principles on the basis of which we justify tolerating them. Okay, that's what he tells the Pope in 1236. This is not the major item on the Pope's agenda. He has a lot of internal heresies that he's dealing with. But because of his heresy sensitivity... Eventually, he picks up on that. And in 1240, he mandates this disputation, okay? The rabbis schmeissed the Christians in the disputation. There's no question about it. It didn't matter. So what they did was they made the deal with the Jew. And no, there was a book burning in Paris in 1242, a book burning, okay? And there were popes from that at that point on who actually issued edicts, you know, to burn books. But the Jews negotiated a deal where they said, we will take out the passages you find to be obnoxious, and if we can keep our Talmuds. And they said yes. And from that point on, all the manuscripts that we have access to from the Middle Ages, not many of them, by the way, there are not a lot, but the ones we do have are free of all that stuff. Okay, so that's, that's what happened. And and subsequent disputations, it's the same thing. The Jew who was the, the convert, the apostate was not pressured. These are Jews who actually became their, you know, for whatever their reasons, they asked, a lot of them were influenced by philosophy. Some of them were influenced by mysticism, whether they were in or a combination of both. And they began to ask questions about Judaism. And the way the monks were able to present to them Christianity, because you had a lot of sophisticated monks running around at that time. And a lot of them knew the Talmud, right? they knew rabbinic sources at that time, or Midrash. They studied them. And from the 13th century, you had schools of, of monks studying Hebrew and Arabic so that they could use that to help convert Jews. It really didn't work in, in, a, in terms of mass numbers. That didn't happen. But but there were those who did. Anyway, those are the people who ultimately turned on the Jews because, you know, if you convert, you're very zealous for your faith, and very often you turn on the faith out of which
4: you came. I didn't ask them, I didn't position the question the right way, but I was interested in why you thought that Talmud was a focus, but not the, I think you called it, my internet went out, but I think you called it the Toldot Yeshua. Why well, didn't know, the know about no,
0: the Yeshua. They didn't know about that until later. That's the point. They didn't. They didn't know about these things. The Jews kept them covered up because they were not essential. They were folk literature. They were not they, the, the 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 monks knew that Judaism's religious foundations. They knew where they were. That's what they went after. Okay, they did not. Keep track of folk traditions. No, that's the advantage of folk traditions. The folk know it, and they learn to keep it under under wraps. Most Jews didn't, you know, couldn't read this stuff, but the stories were told over and over again, and to help sort of maintain the Jewish equilibrium, saying this guy, this whole religion is, a, is is a bunch of hooey. That's what they said about Christianity. Their God is a bunch of hooey. What they teach is a bunch of hooey. And it's based upon a bunch of hooey. Okay? And and so they you know they they could laugh a little, because some of the stuff that they wrote about is laughable. Now I've read I've read the Toldo Yeshu. There are numbers of versions of it. Uh, it's folk literature. But that's how my getting back to where I started, that's how my Bubby learned about Yoshkirpundra. That's my point. And my point is that those traditions were already known. By a few and, and not, not, I don't know that they saw the sources. When these bishops in the ninth century talked about these things, I don't know that they were actually holding, they couldn't read Hebrew. We know that, but they heard about it and they mentioned it, but it went, it went bye bye because the kings, the the Carolingian kings didn't listen to them. They ignored them. In fact, they did things that got these guys angry by supporting these Jewish communities because that's where they got taxes and that's where they were making money because these Jews were part part of international trade organizations and they were pumping resources, financial resources, into their economies. Okay, so that's the point. Okay, all right. That begins, that is the end of my presentation. I just did this just so you understand that that this, this poem is, it's, you know, took a while for people to really come to an understanding of what it represented, where it was from, and now we can study it and, and really see the, the amazing, um, poet, the, the, the guy's a genius, whoever wrote this. I mean, that's my feeling. And I, I must say, in preparing this, once again, uh, I, I've taught it before, but never, you know, in search of all the sources and using what was mentioned here, but also following up on word uses. And it, it's it's amazing, the control that this guy has over language and the structure that he puts into it, and the whole concept of taking an end of days. I mean, what it does is it's saying that each Rosh Hashanah The reader of this should understand that each Rosh Hashanah, from their own personal perspective, is as big as the day of judgment at the end of time is going to be, which means take it seriously. And it means that we don't know what ultimately God has planned for the end of days. I mean, it'll be the Mashiach site, right? That will follow. Yeah, the Messianic era. Okay. All right, next year you're not going to have a Mashiach's experience. But the point is, if you take it seriously and repent, God is eager, eager to take you back. He would rather not punish you. Then that comes after the list of all the punishments that could happen, right? Which is very intimidating. Okay. All right, so that's the point. And, and this had an impact. Jews who, who read it carefully and, and, and absorbed it realized that they had a serious task ahead of them and they had to undertake it. And that's why it's being, it's on Rosh Hashanah as well as Yom Kippur, right? It's, it, it'd say it all days because it covers the whole period. Okay. All right. Let's see what it says. All right. So there's the introduction. All right. <speaking> in <Hebrew> May a sanctification ascend to you. You are our compassionate, uh, no, our our forgiving King. You are our forgiving King. And what it says to with the reference here to Alei it probably was added on when this was placed right before the Kedusha. Because the Kedusha and the repetition of the Amida, the big Kedusha, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Spaot, and all that stuff, is set right after this. So that makes it into a prelude to the Kedusha, as the and the ending, which is part of the poem, apparently, um, also has a big emphasis on Kedusha. So uh now whether that was added on at the end, I don't know.
2: Except on my holidays, we never say that line, right? Correct. Thanks.
0: We never say this whole thing. No. No, this is this is for the high holidays. Yeah. Okay. All right. So when Atanatoket shot Hayom. Okay. You hear it says, "Let us speak of." I don't. I'm seeing. I think it's. It could be. You know. Um. I think it let us, I like better this concept, Natana Tok Toka of his strength, okay? Let us give strength, let us, I like somebody translated it, let us affirm, to affirm, right? Firm, as in firm, strong, to affirm in words, the holiness of this day, right? Because it is awe-inspiring. I, to me, this is like a biblical Hendiades where it's two words that are saying the same thing, really. Okay. It is, it is, uh, awe-inspiring. Okay. Uh, ayom meaning the idea being that the the word ayom means in- inspiring and awe is, is no It's awe-inspiring. Okay. That's what it is. It's awesome. It's odd, but you see that that has multiple meanings, right? It could mean what? What could it mean? If he's saying it's no ra, okay, that word. What is the root of that word? It's yud reish aleph, which means fear, right? It's fear inspiring, like yirat Hashem, fear of God, right? People translate it as reverence, but it really means fear. You so you realize you're in the presence of a super powerful force. Okay. And that's what this is. You're supposed to realize that you are standing in the presence of, of, of but th- this is now talking though. You'll see, you'll see why on this day, your kingship, the recognition of your kingship, will be elevated, will be exalted. It's uh, the, This is what I'm saying. That's a plural form, say All the verbs in this paragraph are plural. So it's really using the imagery of the future day of judgment, which is an awesome day. Okay, this is talking, that's what I'm saying. It should have, they should have left it, as many translations do, in the future. Okay. Vikon bechesed, your your um uh your uh Chesed, your loving kindness will be established. No, I'm sorry. Vikon bechesed kisach, your your throne as king will be established through loving kindness. Interesting, right? So this is you can see the poetry here. The two different parallel. Remember, this is this this parallelism. Your your kingship will be elevated. And your throne will be established on compassion. Okay, so they're talking about the how people will will come to understand God. Then it goes on, the techev beemet, and you will sit upon that in truthfulness. Okay, and then it goes on again with the second next emet. This concept of emet, right? concept of emet, and associating that with God is very common you know it from the prayer service there's a whole paragraph that deals with emet and we say it every morning what is it
2: emet 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 emet
0: artohi so emet emet right that line that the whole everything emet you'd right that whole paragraph the word emet appears 6 times okay god is the god of truth okay and this and the interesting thing is that ends up with the prayer of ga'al Yisrael, right the redeem god is going to, going to redeem us before you go into the amida right and it says that that is definitely a reference to the future redemption that's what it says it's a it's a it's clear it's a reference to the future redemption all right so the point is This notion of God being emet, truthful, reliable, faithful, committed, loyal, right? That's God. But here it serves both purposes. He's a God in whom you can have trust because he's truthful, but also he judges in truth, right? A judge, emet, has got to be a defining quality Of a judge. Can anybody argue that case? (laughs) No. I mean, if a judge is untruthful, what kind of a judge is he? He should be taken off the bench. Right? So that's God. All right? So here, emet, it is true. Kiatahu dayanu mochiach. You are a judge and you reprimand. Right? You call people to account the Odea Bae, and you know and you witness. You I have if- a question about the first BMS. Huh? I have a question about the first BMS.
2: Yes. Says- Go a- ahead. And I'm wondering, you know, our Mocs are translated as from which you rule in truth, but I wonder if the BMS might refer to the entire first two
0: lines that we've read, that the whole thing, that this is all true. Oh, I see. Uh I in other words, it's an affirmation of everything that came beforehand. Um, it could be, it could be, I mean it could be that, but it it could be the whole notion of steadfastness. Remember the line that in the Amethyatsif, right? Uh the paragraph after the, the the passage after the third paragraph of the Shema, with all those descriptives. Yeah. The basic theme from that is permanence. Truthless, loyal—it's it, it, associated with being firm, permanent. established. Right. All those terms point to some of the terms in here. I don't know if they have that in mind. It just hit my brain. You know, maybe that maybe there's some connection. But it, so it could refer to everything that came beforehand, right? Mm-hmm. Or it just could be like a summary statement that this is you, right? <laughs> you just it fits well with the melody that I know for that part. <laughs> yes.
2: To, to add that other interpretation as a possibility.
0: Yes, but I mean, I mean, all that stuff, it talks about all kinds of things, but a dominant theme there is is permanence, reliability, faith, you're loyal, you're permanent, what you say is, it's going to be, Right that's the point. And that leads into the promise of the redemption. And so it could be something similar here. But I don't know. It's a poem. Yes. Yeah. So in a sense we all have the right and privilege to find out how it's meaningful to each of us. Read John Ciardi's book How Does a Poem Mean? Okay? Tells you that's the point. Poem, a poem is intended to bring the reader into the poem and to feel it in a way that that person can find meaning. So that's what we're doing. Joel? Joel? Yes. Yes. In view of the fact that we're
1: supposed to be, have, have been made in God's image, would any of these
0: these qualities such as truth be something that it could be implying that we should have that as well? I think so. I mean, at any point in time, yes. I mean, I think any Jew who understands Judaism has to understand that it is ultimately, when we say that we're in image of God, it means we're supposed to imitate God. And any, any re- true religion, any religion of meaning, of worth, has the concept of imitatio dei, of making the, the qualities we associate with God our own. And therefore, by definition, what you're saying is correct. But that can, repl- that can apply to any divine quality. Actually, when I was a kid,
1: My my mother thought we should get to know more boys, and she told me I should learn to lie. (laughs) No.
4: (laughs) Wait, I I don't get the connection between getting to know more boys and lying.
0: You know, know, sometimes you (laughs) have. Because I was too truthful, and I told them where to go. Oh, I see.
2: I thought it was the boys who lie.
0: Yeah, but I... (laughs) You know, I mean you can lie about, oh yeah, my family's very wealthy, you know. I come from good roots. Yeah. They're a bunch of gonna of them, really. Work you know? for
2: me every time.
0: I see there you go. <laughs> okay. Wait till olum habah. Then the world to come, you know, then you're gonna they're gonna come back to you and say, Did you really do that? You said, No, I was only a kid. Okay, we forgive you.
2: Lie even then.
0: <laughs> All right. Okay. Anyway. Okay, so, but it's, but again, Emmet, it is true. It is, it is correct that you are a judge who can point the finger. You can, you know, you can, you're a mochiach. It means you rebuke someone. You can rebuke, uh, you know, the person standing in front of you, right? And you can, you, you know, you know very well what's going on. We've already established that with some of the other PU team. God reads our insides. Right? And you can actually serve as a judge who from your own knowledge of us can bring testimonial evidence, you know, to, to point the finger. And then you are, then here again, Khotev, the Khoteim, right? You write and you seal his book, right? The great book. Yes. That whole story of the, the two books that he keeps. The Sofer, umone, you count and you, you measure. The and here's the thing, the kol hanishkachot, and you remember things that have been forgotten. Stuff that in my mind, that, you know, I forgot that. He remembered, God remembers that, right? And then the and the and you will open up the book of remembrances, right? And where you wrote it all down, and from there it will be read, right? The Chotam Yad, this is a great line. Yad Kol Adam and the signature of each human is in the book. In other words, it's as if we signed off that those statements were true. Okay, it's you like you you're right. You got to sign something when you have a document. You signed it. Is it? Did you? Did you indeed say these things? Yes, I did. I signed it. In other words, our, his God's knowledge of our actions is our signature, right? And He can show it. That's the whole point here. He knows when we're guilty. Okay? Alright, so this is this is this god before we stand. I want to recommend the thought that we talked about these the influence of these earlier mystical traditions where there's a lot of repetition. And you have here this line Atahu Dayan Umohiak Viode the Kotepa Kotenpasoper umane Cor. Okay, but let's go just more. There are eight different terms here to divide to 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 describe the different way that God is aware of all this information. Eight different terms. Again, it's that style of repetition, but here it's not it's not it's talking about God, which this is what that others the other mystical traditions talk about. But this is not that mystical, right? This is talking about because uh, the mysticism sort of transcends things like sinfulness and stuff like that here it's being applied to the to the to, to the to the judicial power of this god okay this is remember it's no ayom it is awesome right it's awesome that this god as judge is doing all of this all by god's self i don't you don't need, he doesn't need lawyers he doesn't need any any uh stenographers taking the notes at the ju- at the trial or whatever he's got it all cuz it's god so he can make a good case against us so it starts off fear right it's putting the fear of god into us okay and it's intentional okay however however we're going to find out now we're not the only ones remember it's not just us and this is God. This is not right, this is God defining well, all we're doing here is talking about how God operates. And it makes a final statement that our hand is in there. He knows what we did. We signed off because he knows what we did and he remembers. Okay. Now, Uvashofar, Gadol Yitaka. Okay? And you remember the 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 Khazanim love to do Shofar gadol yitaka. And there's some that will say, yitaka, yitaka, yitaka. Right. And then it says, the whole mamadaka yishama. And that still small voice is what is heard. Okay. All right. So where does this come from? The Shofar gadol yitaka, those terms are from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 27, verse 13. Okay, you can look at the notes. Okay, that's from Isaiah. But the reference, of course, to the shofar is where? What shofar is this talking about? Well, on the one hand, it could be it's the shofar of the end of days. But it's also, where else do we find a shofar in a critical moment of God's, making God's presence known? You know the answer, where?
2: At the burning bush.
0: March Sinai, Exodus nineteen, Exodus yeah, twenty. Both, past, both chapters have it. They heard a great shofar sounding, a powerful shofar. So that's the imagery that we have here. It's like this God who was present at Sinai, this God who will be present at the ultimate end of days. Is there's a sho- his presence is announced with the sound of the shofar. And of course, this is intended with Rosh Hashanah in mind, as we will find out, because it's the day when you sound the shofar, right? So it means when you hear that shofar, what should that make you recall? What should that bring to mind? That you are in whose presence? Mm -hmm. The presence, okay? Shakes you up. Whose voice is the still small voice? Is that Hashem's? Aha! I have the answer to that. Some of you have heard me talk about this. Where does that, t- when does the call to Mamadaka come from? That comes from First Kings chapter 19, also Mount Sinai. But who heard that one? We're well, almost there. Elijah the prophet.
4: Hmm. Elijah okay. the King's? Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And that is the, and, and I interpret that actually as a different school of thought indicating that the true essence of God, or God had to appear in an essence that didn't really grab the fullness of who God is. He, he When he gave the Torah, he had to appear with, with with a loudspeaker, right? He had to make a big noise because there were hundreds of thousands of people listening to him. He was talking from the top of a mountain, right? And he had to call to get their attention. So it's a booming voice that scares the dickens out of them, right? Cause afterwards, what do they have to say to Moses? You stand between God and us. We can't take it anymore. It's too scary. It's going to kill us. Okay. He says, okay. All right. But that's the shofar is sounded with that. All right. But when Elijah's on the mountain, it's the exact opposite. He, he stands. He's, he comes to the entrance of the cave. Okay. And there's a wind. That blows and cracks, smashes rocks. It's like a tornado or a hurricane. Rocks are smashing. Big noise, big wind, crashing of rocks. Okay. But then it says God was not in the wind. Then there comes an earthquake. The mountain shakes, as it does during the giving of Torah. The mountain shakes, Mount Sinai shakes. Okay. God is not in the earthquake. And then it says, there appeared fire, probably is lightning. Okay. Or fire, take your pick. Okay. And it says, but God was not in the fire. And then there appears, then it says, and then there was a cold mama daka. And it's not, what does that mean? The voice or the sound of a, the can mean a mumbling or it can actually mean silence, and daka is thin. So it means either an inaudible sound or a very tiny, tiny sound. And when Elijah hears that, what does he do? He takes his cloak and covers his face, because he now knows that he's in God's presence. Okay? So that's what it's about. It's really interesting that it's brought up here. Because it's telling us that yes, there's this loud sound of God. When you think about a powerful presence, right? Think about when a king appears, right? Think about when Darth Vader comes out of the play, out of the, out of the rocket, right? And he's, he's a dom, bomb, 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 right? Frightening. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Lahav deal. I don't want to make a comparison between God and Darth Vader. So don't say, Rambam said God's like Darth Vader. No, but the impact of the noise is the same, right? That's what this is. But it's saying it, that's not really God, right? The real God is the God, the silence, this unknowable. So basically what it's saying is everything we're saying about God now is how what makes an impact on us, but the truth of the matter is God transcends all of this. God is totally spiritual, and then and, and that spirituality we cannot comprehend, but we believe it's there. And we have to you know, that's even more powerful than the noise. Because at least noise you understand, right? When you when you're in the middle of an earthquake, and at least at least if the house isn't falling down on top of you You can say, okay, I live in Los Angeles. We have earthquakes. That's what's going on right now. Okay, it'll pass. It's part of how we are. Okay? And, you know, it's noisy. It's scary. It passes. Okay. But what would happen if the house and the ground shook and there was no noise? Or it didn't shake. But somehow you had a a sense of, of immense power, but there's nothing, okay? And it's telling you the reality is God is beyond power. That's what this is saying. And I love that comparison right there, because it's telling us that, you know, this is not an easy thing to talk about, to put into words. All right, so now, what is the result of this manifestation of God? whether the quiet one and or the noisy one. Umalachim yechapezun. right? Angels quake and quiver from fear. And look at the nun. You see that nun ending? That's an Aramaic ending that's typical of Talmudic Hebrew that was spoken in Eretz Yisrael. Um, You know, even the Hebrew that was there was affected by Aramaic. So it's very typical. That's an example of a Middle Eastern, early medieval, late rabbinic Hebrew. Okay. And this is, you'll see it, it, per, it occurs a couple of times. And it's pro, he may do it because of the poetic meaning, the poetic factor here. You'll see in a moment. So, <clears throat> all right. So again, the, the, the angels, quiver and quake, and it continues, Uraada uh, Yehazum yechazum, I'm sorry, and shaking, ra'ada, that's what happened at Mount Sinai, that wasn't where God was not with Elijah, okay, and, and they're, they're grasped, they're taken over by shaking, this is them personally shaking, and so what do they say, and they say, uh-oh, hine oh. yom behold, this is the day of judgment, Okay. Leaf code to take into account, altsvam marom that the host on high is being judged. Who is this host on high? The angels, right? And, and maybe the, and, and human beings whose souls are on high, for all we know. But if you you, this, in other words, you think, well, if I make it into the, into olam haba, I'm free of all this stuff. (laughs) And this is saying no. There's no no escaping uh, God's judgment. No escaping God's judgment. Okay? Can you, if you're going to talk, it's okay, but can you (laughs) make yourselves? Thank you. Okay. All right. Anyway, so, they they know they're going to be judged up there. And then it goes on. Behol ba'e olam avrun kivnei maron. And all the creatures in the world are going to pass before you as b'nei maron. All right, before we get to that word, which is a very challenging word, notice, tsva marom, the line before, the host on high. Bnei Maron, right? Poetry, yes? So you have the Hafezun, Yochezun, and then you have Yaavrun will pass before you Kifne Maron. The use of the Nuns, okay? And the Un ending. Yehaz, Yivezun, Un, Un, Un.
2: Can you tell me where we are? I'm not finding it here. What? Can you tell me where we are? I'm not uh, seeing it.
0: It's in the second paragraph, in the middle, fourth line. It's I'm talking about the third line, the fourth line, the third, second, third, and fourth lines. See, or a, or, Rabbi, chil uh, or taught us.
2: I got it. Thank you. We really should read this last line: the whole boy olam yavrin lefanecha kiven I'll get to that. Really We're our own consensus.
0: Yeah. No, well, no. There's a different, not quite. It means numbering, but numeron. one second. Yes, that's part of the discussion. Okay, Even there are two, there are actually three different interpretations I saw for that. One interpretation that is commonly used is sheep. Okay. Elaine, here it says a flock of sheep. I'm not sure where they got to that. It may be because of what happens afterwards. What does it say? As a shepherd examines the flock and clearly sheep are mentioned. So therefore that's what follows. Therefore it could very well be that Maron has something to do with sheep. Okay. On the other hand, it has up above tsva Maron. What's tsava? It's a multitude of a number, a large number, right? So therefore it could be given numeron as in the case of a numeron. But a numeron means a platoon of soldiers. In Greek usage, which was used by the Roman army too, it, it is a term that refers to a group of soldiers. Say a numeron, which means a numbered number. In other words, it's, an, it's a body of people of, of who are defined by a number. So it doesn't necessarily mean st- census. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of tweaking what, what Benzie said. Okay. Norm, you got it? Norm? What? I'm, I'm commenting on your comment about Benzie Mm Bergman. Yeah, okay. That is, this may, he's not, not quite. It may not be census. It is a numbered body of people. Okay. And, and they, they assume since it has Sava beforehand, which means which can refer to a host of soldiers, as mm-hmm. well as a host of angels, and that's what it's talking about here. So, and but the third one is a very interesting. Maron, somebody suggested, comes from the Hebrew root uh, uh, mem resh or mem resh yud, which means to rebel. Name Maron in 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 uh, Bamidbar um when um you know the story when the korach and his rebellion right the ground opens up and fire comes down and all that stuff so at the end when they they complain the israelites complain that uh what's going on and why should aaron be the high priest so moses says okay one representative from each tribe give me a staff we're going to put them all in the temple and who is ever staff in the morning has leaves and growth on it. That means that person is chosen of God to be priest. And of course, Aaron was among the 12. So the next morning, lo and behold, one of the staffs is all flowering and even it's got nuts on it. And whose is it? Aaron's. And so God says to Moses, take this and put it and keep it in the temple. In the, in the Mishkan, in the, in the, in the tabernacle. And every time there are rebellion, people with B'nai Mary come. B'nai Mary is the term, right? Those are people who are rebellious. And so there's a suggestion that B'nai Maron is modified version to create poetry, but it has to do with rebels. That could work too, actually, right? Because if you're standing in fear of quaking of God, if you have been a rebellious type, you're really feeling it. Okay, so there's three options. The most common ones are either sheep or a platoon, uh, you know, a specific number of soldiers like a tzavah, and that's contextually, it fits one or the other, what's before it, right? Numbers of angels, afterwards, numbers of sheep, Okay or it could mean rebellious types. Okay. Under any circumstance, it's clear that it is put in here because of poetry. Right? Maron. Right? Yechafeizun. Yocheizun. Maron. Marom. Yaavrum. Okay? Poetry. The use of sounds. All right? And it could be poetic license here. He may have made it up. I don't know. <laughs> now let me, ju- let's just finish the paragraph and the next time we'll finish the rest of the poem, okay? <laughs> so then, now the famous line, Kibakarat roa Ed ro," right? As a, as a shepherd, uh, uh, passes, you know, checks out his, his herd, right? Ma'avir tsono takat chief And he causes his sheep to pass under his staff, right? What is, and so what is he, what is he doing? Why is he doing that? Why does a shepherd have all the sheep pass under his staff? Checking them. Huh? To check them, to see how, how are they? To check them, to see how are them, to see if he lost any to a wolf. Right. Or a lion. Because
1: the 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 prayer says you have to count them. The later words, you have to, you have to count them.
0: Yes, exactly. And and that, that was what shepherds did. Okay. We know from the story of David, it says that he had killed lions with his sling, right? Because there were lions in Eretz Israel. We know that for a fact. Okay. And they attacked sheep. And so the job of the shepherd was to keep them away and to make sure that when he wasn't looking, that they got one. So it's his obligation to check them. It's a sign of care. That's the point here. It's not a sign of judgment. You're not judging your sheep. You're counting them because you're concerned about them. That's the imagery here. And it's a major shift, right? It's a major shift. Yes, we're shaking and quaking, but from God's perspective He is concerned for us. Okay? So um that's Cain to Avir Bati Sportin nefesh kol Chai. So shall God cause to pass and to count and to take take the note of and to take account of the souls of every list living being. Okay? In, in the East, in,
2: that is in the Middle East, um, shepherds still operate in this way. And sheep um, learn to recognize the shepherd and the staff and the rod. Really? When uh, the psalmist you know, says they comfort him, that's exactly how sheep behave. Right. And Very good. Very Mid- good. Yes, thank you. All of their shepherd is not in the West. If you go to Colorado or, or New Mexico or Arizona where there's sheep farming, um, they tend to, sheep ranching, they tend to uh, follow the sheep or surround them with, uh, uh, dogs or whatever. But in that's the, right. They have sheep dogs who, dogs in sheep. Cow. yes. And they pass through, if there's a gateway, they pass through one by one and the shepherd watches and counts and goes after anybody who's lifted their way. And, uh, Psalm 23. Um, reflects that method of, of shepherding, which would be familiar to anybody in the Middle East in those days and even now.
0: Yeah. Thank you. That's very interesting. Think of Moses going up the mountain to, to find the sheep, right? Or so they say, yes. All right. Anyway. But so the point is, though, along with this, the Tachtoch kitzba, the whole... Bri Okay? There will be a limit, an end, a final judgment made. you know, Kitzvah means a limit. Okay? That that's that's the meaning of it. And it um um and you cut a limit, it's like you cut a you you this notion of cutting, akhtokh means to cut. I mean so it's like you you pick it imagine a piece of cloth and you cut it. That's the end of it, okay, So that's the imagery here. Every creature will have a final judgment made and and that's what it says. Betifovov and God will write. God will write uh their judgments, okay, All right, so this is all future tense, all future tense. Now you can see there's a difference though. Between the first and the second paragraph, even though they're all in the future tense, because the first part, yes, <clears throat> of this paragraph, excuse me, <clears throat> the first part of the paragraph with all this judgment up in heaven, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that we know, it, you associate that with a day of great, great judgment. Okay, but when you get to the second part where you see this image of the shepherd, it sort of brings it closer down to earth. This is not heavenly now, right? This is talking about here on earth. And that now could be a segue into what follows, which clearly is us. And so this is a kind of a bridge between the cosmic fear that is associated in the first part which one can see associated with the final judgment day. And this, 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 this transition now of the image of the shepherd, that's totally earthly. It's not heavenly. And it brings it closer to us that this is what God will do to us, right? On the one hand, he's going to judge us and, and there will be a verdict comes out. But on the other hand, he's doing this in a sense out of care. He's concerned for us. Let's use the word concerned. He's concerned for us. Okay. And then we'll see next time we get down to the talkless of what's going to happen this year, this coming year. But then uh, on the next page, we're going to see the balance of how God indeed operates, how the system works, how we can manage it and how ultimately God really does not want us to be punished, but rather God would be much happier if we take the act of repentance seriously. Okay? Do I have to wait for next week to find out why
1: they use Tzom in the next paragraph, the next sentence? Why they use what? Why do they use Tzom? I've been wondering about this for years. They use what? Tzom, tzom Kippur. Instead of Yom. I'm yom. like, she's talking about the word Psalm, the fast of Yom. It's it's yom. And,
0: yeah, yeah, right. Uh, because, why, that's, it's a day of fasting, no? I mean, it's the, Why it's Sadi instead of Yud?
1: Psalm is a different word than Yom. Yom,
0: som yom means a oh. day,
1: and Psalm means a fast.
0: Yet, oh, som, okay, okay, thank you. Yeah, right. Uh, no, it's poetry. I mean, I, I'm sure it's put in there be Yom Tzom, right? You could simply right. say Yom Kippur, or right. you could say Yom Tzom Kippur, okay. but by saying Yom Tzom, right? That's em- emphatic. A, but fast, all- day. Yeah, a the fast, fast day means yeah, the fast day it is. Okay. But, um, but the sound again, this is poetry. The poet okay. is, is looking for sound uh, sound effects, if you will. Okay, that's, po- that's poemed, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, Tzom is, that's right, Tzom is Hebrew for a fast. Okay. Yes, in fact, if you read the, read the Haftarah on Yom Kippur from Isaiah, he's saying, is this your fast day? Where you, you know, you're, you, you mistreat people, you don't really take things seriously, and this is your big fast day. It's <clears throat> that poem, I'm sorry, that prophecy, <clears throat> which is sort of poetic from Isaiah 56:57, I believe. That, 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 that reference is supposed to say to you, are you, how seriously, for this is the morning of Yom Kippur, how seriously are you taking this fast? That's what it's saying. Cause if you don't take it seriously, it's not going to help. If you take it seriously, then yes, it'll, it'll help. Okay. It has to help you change your attitude. That's what it's about. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Very good. All right, folks. See we shall week. conclude next week. And uh, please read ahead, look at the notes, think about it. <clears throat> and I want to remind you that my favorite of all the scary things in the next passage. And I remember Shmulek, Cantor love of Shalom, used to make a big deal about this. Do you remember which one he ma- he would really put an emphasis on? No. Ra'ash, earthquake. <clears throat> Very relevant, right, of all of them. I always, it shook me up. Ha ha ha. All right. Goodbye. Uh, Shana Tova. And uh, you yeah, have a good week and a good Shabbos on, on, over the weekend. And, uh, we have Slichot. And so you can start repenting if you haven't already and be well. Okay.